So you were sick last week and feeling better this week. Yeah. Thankfully. Glad to hear it. <laughs> Thank you. And I think we have a lot to cover this week, so we'll get right to it. I'll avoid rambling on like I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's both of us. I think we'll just jump into what do you have tonight? So I'm talking about the first Australian woman to be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole what year was this uh in the 2000s 2000s early 2000s yeah was the first time yeah wow Catherine knight was convicted of the murder of her partner john price in october of 2001 in february 2000 a series of assaults on price built up with knight stabbing price in the chest when price was fed up he kicked her out of his house on February 29th, he stopped at a court on his way to work to take a restraining order out on her to keep her away from him and his children. He later told his co-workers that if he did not come to work the next day, it was because Knight had killed him. They begged him to not go back home, but he feared she would kill his children if he didn't. Oh, wow. So they had children. They were his children from a previous marriage. Oh, okay. That's scary. Yes, there were three, but the youngest had stayed with the mom. Oh. Okay. So it's two older children. Price came home to find that Knight had sent the children away for a sleepover at a friend's house, although she herself was not there. He spent the evening with the neighbors until going to bed at 11 p.m. Earlier that day, Knight bought a new black lingerie and videotaped her children while making comments, which was later interpreted as a crude will. Knight arrived at Price's house while he was sleeping and sat watching TV for a few minutes before taking a shower. She woke Price up and they had intercourse, after which he fell asleep. At 6 a.m. the next morning, the neighbor was concerned that Price's car was still in the driveway, and when he did not arrive at work, his employer sent a worker to check on him. Both the neighbor and co-worker tried knocking on the bedroom window in attempts to wake him up, but they noticed blood on the front door and alerted the police, whom arrived at 8 a.m. The police broke down the back door and found his body with night comatose from taking a bunch of pills. She had stabbed Price with a butcher's knife while he was asleep. Blood evidence showed that he woke up and tried to turn the light on before attempting to escape, while Knight chased him through the house. He managed to open the front door and get outside, but he either stumbled back inside or was dragged back into the hall where he died from blood loss. Later, Knight withdrew $1,000 from Price's ATM account. Price's autopsy revealed that he was stabbed at least 37 times in both the front and back of his body, with many wounds extending into vital organs. Several hours after Price had died, Knight skinned him and hung the skin on a meat hook. What? Yeah. I thought this was just a revenge rage murder thing. Well, it technically is just a well, lot yeah, of rage. Well, yeah, but that's beyond just being pissed at somebody and killing them. Yeah. Ugh. She then decapitated him and cooked parts of his body and was serving it with baked potato, 
pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. Wait, so was this the first time she had done anything like this? Yes. This does not seem like just somebody who got pissed at somebody and decided to kill them. This seems like an advanced serial killer cannibalist. Ugh. Yeah, I will go back into part of her childhood about why she might have this much rage towards men. Okay. It was set up at the dinner table with notes beside each plate, each having the names of one of Price's children on it. A third meal was thrown on the back lawn for unknown reasons, and it was speculated that Knight had attempted to eat it, but couldn't, and this was put forward in support of her claim that she had no memory of the crime. Wow, yeah, this is just so bizarre. I can't even wrap my head around what she was doing. Yeah. She was basically serving him to his children. Yes, that was her plan, yeah. Was she actually planning to do that, or she just set it up as some type of statement? I think she was planning on doing that. Oh. Yeah. Price's head was found in a pot with vegetables. The pot was still warm, estimated between 40 to 50 degrees Celsius, indicating that the cooking had taken place earlier in the morning. Sometime later, Knight had arranged the body with the left arm draped over an empty one-liter soft drink bottle with the legs crossed. This was claimed in court to be an act of degrading, demonstrating Knight's contempt for Price. Knight left a handwritten note on top of a photograph of Price, blood-stained and covered with small pieces of flesh. The note had accusations of Price assaulting her daughter, but those accusations were found to be groundless. Wait, so he had three children from a previous marriage, and then she also had a daughter? Yeah. So there was four kids altogether. Yeah, well, his well, two one oldest... Of- one, yeah, one of them was with their mother. Yeah. Okay, I got it. Okay. Knight's initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected, and she was prosecuted on February 2nd, 2001, on the charge of murdering Price, to which she entered a plea of not guilty. Her trial was initially set for July 23rd, 2001, but she was adjourned due to her counsel's illness, and it was reset for October 15th, 2001. When the trial began, Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence, which five had accepted. When the witness list was read out to the jury, several more also dropped out. Knight's attorney then spoke to the judge who adjourned the following day. The next morning, Knight changed her plea to guilty and the jury was dismissed. It was now made public that Justice O'Keefe had been advised of the plea change the day before. He'd adjourned the trial and then ordered a psychiatric assessment overnight to determine if Knight understood the consequences of a guilty plea and was fit to make such a plea. Knight's legal team had planned to defend her by claiming amnesia and dissociation, a claim supported by most psychiatrists, although they did not consider her sane. No reason has ever been given for the guilty plea. Knight still refused to accept responsibility for her actions. At the sentencing hearing, Knight's lawyers requested that Knight be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts, but the application was refused. So she didn't want to be present while the facts were being presented. Well, her lawyers didn't think she should be present. Okay. 
When Dr. Timothy Lyons took the stand and described the skinning and decapitation, Knight became hysterical and had to be sedated. So is she just putting on an act, or she was claiming that she didn't remember anything that happened, right? She was, yeah, she was claiming yeah. that she didn't remember. Oh. Hmm. On November 8th, Justice O'Keefe pointed out that the nature of the crime and Knight's lack of remorse required a severe penalty. He sentenced her to life imprisonment, refused to a fixed non-parole period, and ordered that her papers be marked, quote, never to be released. The first time that this has ever been imposed on a woman in Australian history. In June 2006, Knight appealed the life sentence, claiming that a penalty of life in jail without possibility of parole was too severe for the killing. Too severe for somebody who stabbed somebody 30 plus times, skinned them, decapitated them, cooked them, was attempting to serve him to their children. Yeah. Or his children. That was too severe to be in prison for life. Yep. Okay. According to her. Yeah. A total of three justices dismissed the appeal in the Court of Criminal Appeal in September, with one of them writing in his judgment, quote, This was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society, end quote. I agree with that. Yeah. I'm having a hard time comprehending what the hell she did. Yeah. But that was it. But I did say I was going to go back to her childhood a bit. Right. I kind of wanted to do that after the fact. So her dad was an alcoholic who often abused her mother. But as far as it was stated, he did not abuse her. But she was abused by male family members. Oh, geez. And her mother often expressed her hatred for men. And she did have a history of assaulting people when she was a girl, but none of them as murderous as this case. I certainly feel sorry for anybody who goes through that. Yeah. But I imagine there are a lot of people who have gone through similar situations. Yeah. But they don't become as sadistic and murderous as she did. Yeah. So I think it also may have to do with... It has to have something to do with chemical wiring in the brain with lack of empathy. Yeah, there, there's something else going on Yeah, that makes them like they are. Yeah, and I think it just, I mean, this is no excuse. I'm not excusing anyone who does this. Right. I just think for why some people do become murderous and some don't, it's just the one, whether they have access to get help mentally to cope and recover and to the chemical imbalances in their brains. Right. And just not getting help in general. Yeah, definitely important to understand what they went through. Yeah. To try to understand, you know, how to help people in the future. Yeah. But it has to be more than just the way they were brought up. Yeah. Like you said, the lack of empathy somewhere they lost that or never had it. Yeah. And let's kind of the argument of, I know she wasn't a serial killer, but are serial killers born or made? Right. And I think I've mentioned this before, but I actually did a paper on that. There was never a conclusion because it kind of goes both ways. Yeah, they just don't really know yet. Yeah. Or like you said, yeah, both ways. It could be either or. Yeah. Well, you know, 
there are a lot of serial killers who have had head injuries that right. completely changed them. She could have had a head injury that nobody knows about. That's true. That's that, true. And I guess that's the tricky part of trying to determine what happened to yeah. some of these people. Yeah. But that is the end of my story. Very interesting. I thought it was interesting that she was the first Australian woman to be convicted with life imprisonment without parole. Yeah, that, that really amazes me that not only not the first, but that it was the 2000s yeah. before. I wonder what it is out here. The first woman who... With life imprisonment without parole. Hmm. Good question. Why don't you let us know next episode? <laughs> I will. <laughs> look that up. <laughs> but yeah, that was it. Very graphic. Yeah. Bizarre and gross. And unfortunately, not the only story I've heard like this. So. Right. Yes. Very unfortunate. But... What do you have? If you were done with your thoughts, you looked like you're going to say something. <laughs> well, I was just thinking that it's a shame. It's horrible that he died. But I was thinking, thankfully, the kids didn't get hurt. Yeah. And also that they caught her before the meals. Yeah. Certainly they're scarred. Yeah. And they went through a horrible situation. But at least they didn't get hurt. Yeah. He was worried about that. Physically hurt. Yeah. But yeah, I am glad. I mean, yeah, like you said, it is unfortunate, but... But yeah, so um, what do I got tonight? So I swear I don't know where I find these stories <laughs> or why some even catch my interest. But tonight I thought I would talk about the ghost of Olive Thomas. Now, I bet you're wondering right now, who the hell is Olive Thomas? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I will get to that. Well, my first thought was Olive the other ring. Oh my God, you're... <laughs> You're stealing me. You read my notes, Dad. didn't you? <laughs> no, I didn't. That's just like the first thing that popped in my head. I jotted that down because I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of Olivia's out there, right? Yeah. But I don't hear the nickname Olive very often. And the first thing that came to my mind was Olive the other reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> I is. hope people know what that movie is. I feel like if I were to mention that movie, people would not. Which is a shame, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it should be a staple, just like Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Frosty the Snowman, Charlie Brown Christmas, Yeah. The Grinch, Rudolph. Rudolph. So, yeah, I never understood why it didn't gain in popularity. That That is a great show. Yeah. But that is also hilarious. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I didn't even think. I don't know. It was just the first thing that popped in my head. <laughs> that is funny because that is exactly what I thought because I was thinking, wow, I don't, you don't hear that name very often. No. Did you ever notice that out of all the reindeer, Rudolph was the only one to have his own show? <laughs> That's suspicious to me. Because he has a red nose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so as you can see, fair warning, my mind is kind of wandering tonight. So Yeah. <laughs> May go off on a bit of a tangent here and there. Anyway, <laughs> in the early 1900s, Olive Thomas was a model, Ziegfeld Follies chorus girl, one of the original flappers, and a silent film actress before her unfortunate death in 1920 at the age of 25. Oh, that's young. But yeah. also, I only recognize two of those 
yeah, job I, titles. I was going to say that I imagine a lot of those terms were foreign to your generation. Yeah. <laughs> so let me explain. Okay. First, I'll start with silent film. I know. <laughs> silent <laughs> <No>. film it. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Even I don't hear Ziegfeld Follies or Flapper very often. So I imagine, yeah, that you, I figured you weren't familiar with those. Those sound made up. I'm no, sorry. They're not. <laughs> I'll explain as I go along. Okay. Her birth name was O L I V A. So I'm not sure if that's, I never heard that before. I've never seen that before. So I'm not sure if that's Olive still or Oliva, probably Oliva. Oliva? Yeah. So I'll go with that. So Oliva R. Duffy. What? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're thinking... Oliva, the other reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> We're still on. I should have just did an episode on all of the other reindeer. Oh, my gosh. Our next episode. <laughs> yeah. We'll tell everybody this story since nobody's seen it, probably. Yeah. Was born in 1894 in Pennsylvania. Although she often claimed her birth name was Oliveretta Elaine Duffy. Huh. So, yeah, I'm not sure what that was all about. But. That's interesting. After her father's death when she was 15, Olive left school to get a job so she could help support her siblings. At age 16, she married a man by the name of Bernard Thomas, thus where she got her last name. Yeah. What? Bernard. Bernard. <laughs> Such old names. Yeah, well. This I was... <laughs> Yes, in the olden times. I just want to know who looks at a baby and names it Bernard. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably people that are named Bernard. I don't want to offend yes, anyone. Yes, now you've just offended. The whole Bernard population. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and all the Bernards that listen to our podcast <laughs> are no longer going to listen. Oh, my gosh. Them and everybody in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Florida. Florida gave up a long time ago. Yeah, maybe Texas. No, we respect Texas. That's where the yes. hardworking devil is, isn't it? That's right. Yes, we do. We just tease the state every now and then. But Florida. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> a couple of years later, in 1913, Olive moved to New York. I read a couple of different scenarios on her move. One where she had separated from a husband and then moved there. Another where she had went to visit her aunt and she liked it so much she decided just to stay and abandon her life in Pennsylvania. I mean, valid. What's that? Valid. Valid just to abandon your life? I mean, why not? Sometimes yeah. you got to start off fresh. Yeah. In 1914, she entered and won a contest looking for, quote, the most beautiful girl in New York City, end quote, which launched her career as an illustrator's model. I know this is hard to imagine, but there was a time when advertisements and magazine covers were hand-drawn by illustrators. Wait, really? Yeah. Okay, when you said model earlier, I was thinking, what is she modeling for? She's modeling for the illustrators. Oh, yeah, no, I... <laughs> that's... For advertisements and magazine covers. That seems exhausting. And, well, let me step back a little bit. Do you remember what magazines are? I know. I know what magazines are. I had Ranger Rick when I was growing up. <laughs> oh, yes. Ranger Rick. Oh, my gosh. In 1915, Olive joined the Ziegfeld Follies. 
Seems like I'm going to go through a lot of her history yeah. before I get to her ghost, but I just felt it was important to understand who she was Yeah. to understand the ghost. But let me explain the Ziegfeld Follies to you. Can I, can I take a guess? Sure. Is it like a dance group? Close. Oh, okay. So it had dancing, skits, you know, chorus numbers, songs, and comedy. Kind of like an all-around variety show. They had comedy played, uh, back played then? On, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, they did have humor back then. <laughs> it was invented, I'm not sure what year, but <laughs> it was invented before then. <laughs> so it was kind of a show capturing the glitz and glamour of the era. Yeah. And, of course, a strong focus on beautiful girls. Makes sense. The Follies ran on Broadway in the early 1900s, and more specifically at the New Amsterdam Theater on West 42nd Street between 1913 and 1920, when Olive was a part of that. Speaking of the beautiful girls aspect of it, there was also the Midnight Frolic, which was an offshoot of the Follies, which she also appeared in, that played in the rooftop theater of the New Amsterdam and was more risque and catered to a wealthier clientele. Yeah. Now on to another term that I mentioned. During that era, young women that behaved and dressed in an unconventional manner, short hair, glitzy attire, short skirts, short for the era. So yeah. probably, you know, above the ankle, but still below the knee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if they went above the knee, but partying, going to jazz clubs, etc. They were called flappers. Speaking of jazz clubs, is there a name for when jazz music gives people anxiety? Probably. Is that a phobia or is that just me? Well, I, I mean, there probably is. There has to be a term for everything. <laughs> Sorry, wandering again. I just. Oh my gosh. I just, I, I swear jazz gives me anxiety for some reason. I kind of feel the same way, but I think it's all the sounds. Yeah, I don't know if it's the randomness of it, yeah. which is the intent, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it just stresses me out. I think it's just like all the sounds on top of each other. Yeah. Bothers yeah. me. So when Olive launched her silent film career, which I'll get into, she is said to have been the first girl to portray a flapper on film. She actually was in a film called The Flapper in 1920, <laughs> although I'm not sure if that was the film that they were talking about. Yeah. How original. Yeah. <laughs> the beginning of the film era, right? That's true. It was in 1916 that she headed to Hollywood and began her silent film career. She appeared in more than 20 features over the course of the four years before her death. Oh, wow. That was my thought, but features back then weren't the full-length movie features that we think about today. Oh, okay. You know, like a lot of them were less than an hour. That makes sense. So, still a lot, but... You know, not like 20 full-length films today in yeah. four years. So that would be insane. Yeah. That, and also, I feel like it takes less time if they're silent films. Yeah, I don't know. Because, you know, they're still talking and everything. But I guess less time as far as you don't have to edit the audio. Yeah. And if, if they mess up a line, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> so bizarre watching silent films. Especially <laughs> without the, the music and stuff that they play with it. Oh, wait, they're ones without music? Well, the music was played in the theater, so they would have a like a piano player or somebody in the theater, but hmm. they would sit there and play music while the film played. That's weird. I didn't think about that. I just thought they like, I don't know why I thought this, because it's a silent film. But it definitely helps rather than it being totally quiet and everybody reading the, the captions or whatever. 
explaining oh, the scene and then the scene plays. Oh, so they do have those. Yeah, they have. It's not just you're guessing what's going no, on. No, yeah, no, they, they, they have, they have uh, captions or whatever you want to call it. So like title screens. That's confusing. Anyway, wandering <laughs> again, not just me. <laughs> you have to call me out like that. Just, you have to expect that I have questions. Just, I know, I'm just kidding. Also in 1916, she married Jack Pickford, the younger brother of silent film actress Mary Pickford. Now, total side note here, but I'm assuming you're not familiar, and I think it's worth mentioning, because Mary Pickford was actually a pioneer in the film industry. Oh. Aside from being one of the most, if not the most, famous actress of the era, one of her many accomplishments was founding the movie studio United Artists in 1919, along with Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, and D.W. Griffith. I'm assuming Charlie Chaplin's the only other name that you recognize there. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Olive and Jack initially kept their marriage secret, and Olive didn't want to take Jack's last name because she didn't want people thinking... Her rising stardom was the result of her relationship to the Pickford family. Uh, That makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, back to Olive, the other reindeer. (laughs) So they were married, but as you can imagine, two young people living a lavish lifestyle in Hollywood. There was a lot of partying, fighting, reconciliation, et cetera, et cetera, right? In August of 1920, Jack and Olive headed to Paris on a second honeymoon, supposedly to spend some time together and try and repair the relationship while also doing some film preparations. On the night of September 5, 1920, they went out for a night of partying and returned to their hotel around 3 a.m. That's late. Yeah, but that was the lifestyle, right? Yeah. Intoxicated and tired, it is believed that Olive thought a flask contained either drinking water or a sleeping tonic, but it actually contained a mercury bichloride solution, which was a topical medication that had been prescribed to Jack to treat sores caused by chronic syphilis. Ew. Ew. Yeah. (laughs) Ew. Wait, it was in a flask? Yeah, they said flask, but I don't know if it was actually a bottle or a flask. There wasn't really a a lot of detail on that. They did say the label was in French, though, so it may have added to her confusion about what was in the bottle or flask or whatever. Yeah. After drinking it, she screamed out, which woke Jack, and he rushed to her side as she began to collapse. He attempted to dilute the poison by getting Olive to drink water and then raw eggs to try and get her to vomit. A doctor was called who pumped her stomach three times, but as she continued to decline, she was rushed to a hospital where she died five days later when her kidneys failed. Oh. Yeah. Her cause of death was acute nephritis or inflammation of the kidneys caused by accidental poisoning. Jeez. There's a lot of controversy around her death. It was actually one of the first examples of media sensationalism related to a Hollywood star. Yeah. A lot of rumors and speculation surrounding whether it was murder, an accident, or suicide. Yeah. But I won't get into all that. Jack accompanied her body back to New York via ship, and she is interred in a mausoleum in the Woodland Cemetery in the Bronx. Now, on to the hauntings, (laughs) since this is a paranormal (laughs) story. We had a little bit of possible true crime 
Yes. Yeah, that, that's true. We could go back and do that story. <laughs> After her death, workers at the New Amsterdam Theater claimed to have seen Olive throughout the 1920s. Now, the theater fell into disrepair in the 1930s. I imagine it was due to the Great Depression, for one, but it became a movie theater in the late 1930s. Not exactly sure what happened to the theater between then and like the mid-90s, but at some point it was boarded up. Times Square was a pretty seedy place in the 60s through the 80s, before the renovations of the 90s. Yeah. So I imagine if anybody had sighted Olive during that period, they might have just thought it was the drugs. Yeah, that makes (laughs) sense. Yeah, just that era, probably not a lot of reportings, if there even were any sightings. Yeah. But the Disney theatrical company bought and refurbished it in the mid-90s, and that is when the reported sightings started up again. Wow. It is said that stagehands often report seeing a beautiful woman in a green 1920s dress walking around the theater and vanishing abruptly. The sightings mostly occur when the theater is quiet and mostly empty. I feel like that's how they usually are. Yeah, when there's less activity. Or is it when there's more activity, people just see them but don't really realize realize that they saw them. That makes sense too. Yeah. A night watchman is said to have spotted Olive on the stage and then saw her walk through a solid wall. Well, all walls are solid, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I read different stories about what the watchman did. Read that he called up management in the middle of the night and then he quit or he didn't quit on the spot, you know, stuff like that. So I'm not really sure. I guess it doesn't really matter. Well, why would he call management though? What are they going to do? Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) I'm not sure exactly what happened there. But I also read in a few places that when Olive was spotted in the theater, she was carrying a blue bottle. Apparently the bottle that contained the poison she drank. Hmm. But I'm suspicious of that. It seems like they're kind of sensationalizing it a little bit. Yeah. I didn't read anything describing the details of the bottle or flask, so I'm not really sure. And maybe it's just my optimism that I'd rather think that she is there because it was the happiest place she was at during her life. Yeah. Rather than she's some tormented soul. Yeah. Um... All right. Employees have reported feeling somebody touched their back, but when they turn around, there's nobody there. What? Don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that'd be kind of creepy. Well, I'd rather that than turn around and the ghost be there. (laughs) (laughs) Then I'd crap my pants. (laughs) (laughs) As you'll find out, I do that a lot. Well, (laughs) I almost do that a lot. Almost do that. (laughs) (laughs) As I get older, it's getting more (laughs) (laughs) difficult. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm on the edge. (laughs) There was enough going on in the theater that they place photos of Olive at every entrance so employees can greet her when they arrive and say goodbye when they leave. I read they have a ritual of blowing a kiss or touching the photo as they come and go. And it is said that this minimizes the ghostly activity. Huh. I think it's like a cute little thing to do in memoriam of her. Yeah. But is it something they have to do? I'm guessing it was in memoriam and not to, to try to reduce the activity, yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. There was also a story about how the staff were sitting around in one of the offices discussing the movie The Artist, which was about the silent film era. Yeah. 
Olive Thomas was mentioned as one of the Follies girls that became a film star, and then someone said the real star of the silent film era was Mary Pickford, at which point a stack of DVDs sitting on a table flew off as if somebody had smacked them. Oh. Not as though they had just fallen over. Yeah. Supposedly. She but, wasn't happy about that. Yeah. This is why I don't talk behind people's backs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And finally, Olive does have a bit of a fan base. The employees have to do a special sweep of the theater at the end of the day to catch anyone who is trying to stow away for the night and try to catch a glimpse of Olive's ghost. Huh. Why would people want to do that? Well, you know how people are. Well, do they get in trouble? Or is it just they get kicked out? I don't know. Good question. I guess technically they're not, they haven't locked up yet, so they're not trespassing yet. Yeah. So who knows? Imagine they just escort them out. But that was it. A long way to get to a short discussion of a ghost. Yeah. No, it's interesting though. It's sad. Yeah, she had a very sad life. Well. Sad ending. Sad ending to a very active life, it seemed like, in a very short time span. Anything else? I don't think so. It was just nice to hear that a woman back then was able to make a life for herself, even though it was short-lived. Yes. Well, her and Mary, you can't forget Mary Pickford. Yeah. Well, yeah, her too. Alrighty then. Nothing else? We'll wrap it up. Thank you very much for joining us. Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12past3 or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night.